0: Welcome to an off the beat dance podcast with Ameya and Kiran.
1: I'm Ameya King. I'm a
2: Kuchipudi dancer, dance educator, and writer based in Richmond, Virginia.
0: I'm Kiran Ajigal and I'm a New Jersey-based dancer, choreographer, educator, and writer. Over the course of the season. We have been looking very closely at the practice of dance from both the dancer's perspective through embodied practice, as well as the audience's experience of dance through the lens of rasa theory. The experiences of both the dancer and the audience are ultimately connected through the idea of centering joy in dance.
2: Today, we want to focus on the rituals that surround our
1: dance practices, both on and off stage. ta, boom. When
2: I was a senior in college, I took what was the most transformative course of my four years. I was taking a South and Southeast Asian folklore and performance class where we were exploring the Ramayana through the perspective of some of the different communities in those regions that performed it. We would center largely on the Indonesian practice of kecak, but I was also tasked with bringing my Kuchipuri training into the class as a student teacher. Every class began the same way with the same ritual. We would leave our shoes at the door. We would pick up these cloths to wipe the floor. And after we had wiped the entire floor of the studio space on our hands and knees, we would congregate in a large circle, the banjar. Together, we would not only do stretches, but also do the kecak chants from Indonesia. We would sing a bhajan, And after several other rituals, we would close with the shlokam, Asatoma Sadgamaya. As I was teaching Kuchipuri, I would begin with the Kuchipuri Namaskaram. And I taught some basic steps as well as hand gestures and showed my fellow classmates how to string together the steps and the hand gestures to act out the story so that they could then take those tools into their performances of episodes from the Ramayana. I had very conflicted feelings through... This experience. Initially, I was a little bit shocked at the way that the professor brought together these sacred Sanskrit shlokas and mixed them with practices from other cultures. And I wasn't sure how I felt about that, but I said, you know what, I'll be open-minded to it. However, I felt that it was my responsibility to be as true to my understanding of my dance form. So I would go to that class in a dance practice, sorry, walking across campus that way. And it was a very daunting exercise and I was very nervous about it, but I would force myself through it. I also really wondered, is it okay to explore And taste and mix and match between, you know, Balinese practices and Filipino practices and and Kuchiburi and other bhajans and things like that. With a group of students from around the world who didn't have the cultural context or the history or the spiritual connection with the subjects. So that's kind of what I want to explore today. As we talk about ritual,
0: Amaya, that was a really, really lovely story, and I actually have been going through a similar experience teaching a Bharatanatyam course at Marymount Manhattan College with students who are entirely outside of the tradition of Indian classical dance, and I and I'm thinking through such things: Can I borrow from modern dance? Can I borrow from contemporary dance and bring it meaningfully into Bharatanatyam and pedagogy and instruction in Bharatanatyam? And we'll talk more about this a little bit later on in the episode, but your story also reminds me of a very interesting experience that I had in Indonesia. So for our listeners out there, I'm going to shift the focus now back to Bharatanatyam and classical dance and how much certain things that we have in our practice have become so integral for us to center ourselves before and during performance. I had a very experience when I had to figure out how to work through my issues without a critical component of my dance. And so when I was going to Indonesia back in 2011, and so this was in Solo or Surakarta, Indonesia, and a dear friend and colleague of mine, his name is Rianto, invited me to uh, his institution where he had studied in Solo. And it was just to do a workshop and a performance. And so I had packed up all my things and I packed up my bells in my suitcase because in my experience of traveling, sometimes people give me a hard time when I carry things like my makeup and my bells in my hand luggage. Long story short, I arrived in Kuala Lumpur Airport. I was waiting for my bags because I had to recheck in my luggage, which was really annoying. But... My bag was the last to come out of the conveyor belt, and there was a big X on it. It's like, this is really strange. So I wondered if they had searched through it. So I immediately opened my suitcase, and I was rummaging through my stuff. Everything seemed to be in there except for my bells. And this was really shocking to me that they would go through my suitcase and just take out bells and not put them back so i was wondering what was that about and i had asked the officials there and they said you know oh we don't know anything about it um everything was searched through but nobody took anything it's like yeah they took my bells i need them to dance they're really important i really need them to dance i have a performance in solo in about four days and i need my bells where are they and they said we can't help you and i also was about to miss my connecting flight to indonesia so I had to let it go all throughout that time. I had this sort of nagging feeling that I needed to find bells because I couldn't dance without them. The night before I started to just, you know, in a panic travel throughout all of, of solo solo not huge, but it's still big going from market to market to market to market, asking if anybody had loose bells or bells or anything of that sort. And everybody looked at me crazy. Finally, at around, you know, three hours into my search, I came across a small little shop and I saw some weird brass things in the window. I asked the person, are those bells that are there in the front window? And he's like, yes. And then he brought them out and they were OK. They were like really high pitched, but I said, this will do. And he said that the price per bell was about two US dollars and mind you a pair of bells whether you tie them or whether you have it you know stitched and all that you require at least 30 bells so we're talking about 60 to 80 US dollars just to find bells I had no choice because I thought I really need my bells for my performance so I got them and then I had to find something to string them on and he had this ribbon that was Bright pink in color. I was not happy, but I made do during the performance. The bells fell off anyway. So I ended up dancing without my bells for the performance for at least half of it. And people didn't care. It was a small stage, it was an intimate audience. In the end of the day, I really didn't need the bells. But for some reason I attached so much importance of onto my bells because it's one of those accessories that is almost become venerated through our rituals associated with wearing the bells. There was this incredible attachment to the idea that your full costume, you're a full dancer once you wear the bells. But honestly in the practice and in the and in the grand scheme of things, is it really that important? But younger kitten was a maniac without his bells, but older kittens looking back on younger kitten with a little bit of empathy and saying, I understand, I get you, but it's not that big of a deal. You can always dance, you can always inspire, you can always uplift audiences with just your dance itself.
2: I have to say, when I heard that story, my hands started getting clammy because the idea of losing bells while traveling is quite terrifying and it honestly sounds harrowing. And I think that goes back to say exactly what you're underscoring. We ascribe sacredness to some of the practices that surround our dance. And bells are something that are so central, not just as an accessory, but as the linchpin of our our identity as dancers. I think it would help for us to kind of talk about what we mean as rituals. I know for the longest time, I just thought about rituals as practices that are related to prayer in a religious context, you know, lighting the lamp, um, things like that. But in more recent years, I've started to recognize other things as ritual. I I want to kind of bring up the framework that I became introduced to by a book that I've been reading, The Power of Ritual by Casper Turcayle, where he said, there are four types of rituals, those that help you connect with yourself, those that connect you with others, those that connect you with nature, and those that connect you with something transcendent. When it comes to our bells, They're a combination, right? They help us connect with ourselves as dancers. They are this thread of connectivity across so many Indian classical dance forms, as well as with so many other dancers. And for those of us that believe dance is divine, that sound can be a very transcendental feeling. Going back to the class I was talking about, the year after I graduated, they performed a production called Sita Ayana, And one of my friends, who's also a Kuchpuri dancer, played the role of Sita. I did not expect her to walk on stage wearing her Kuchpuri bells. But the sound of those bells in that performance was transformative for me. It became more than just a play. It was the existence of those bells.
0: There's people from the outside watching in. That's their immediate association with Indian dance sometimes. It's like, I heard the bells, I see the costume, I see the colors. It's a cultural signifier. There's a lot of nexus points that happen in dance when it comes to ritual and sacredness, joy. That is going to be the subject that we tease apart as we go through the episode. So my first question for you, Ameya, about ritual. Is there a right or a wrong way of doing a prescribed ritual? So, for example, you know, we were talking about Namaskaram and the people that we are teaching and the intention of why we're teaching. The idea of the Namaskaram being something that grounds you in your practice and in the space that you're in and grounds you to the energy that the earth provides you and you give back to the earth through dance What happens for dancers who say that they want to do a namaskaram where they say roll on the ground as a way to connect to the earth's energy?
2: You know, that's a hard one, because that's not a question I really have considered before specific to the namaskaram. When I was teaching the namaskaram, I taught it the way I had learned it. And I gave the same context that I had been given when I learned the namaskaram and I just hoped that they felt at least some degree of the weight and the grounding that I felt as I did it in my practice. But I know that you've been a bit more adventurous with an Namaskaram.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes and no. So I found something very interesting. I taught two semesters of a Bharatanatyam class that was sort of subsumed under a modern dance course at Marymount Manhattan College. And I taught mainly juniors and some sophomores and seniors. So there were dancers who were interested in going into a professional life, whether it was in ballet or in modern or in contemporary. This was a required course. And usually what MMC has been doing, MMC is Marymount Manhattan College. They've been inviting guest artists from other disciplines to come in. So I didn't just want to give them checkmark diversity, checkmark cultural experience, but I wanted to actually meaningfully integrate with their curriculum, their pedagogy, so that I could build a case that Indian dance and Indian classical dance in particular is a foundational technique like ballet is that can really ground a dancer and provide them some important tools to be able to apply to their own practice. With Namaskaram, The students were extremely reverential and extremely respectful of the ritual. For the most part, all of my students were not of Asian descent or background. They were also unfamiliar with the idea of ritual in the Asian context. I asked them to riff on it, sort of just to see how they move. Many of them came back to me and said, I liked the Namaskaram the way it was. I felt something that was really grounding and centering, so I didn't feel like I wanted to tamper with that. A few students though said I really wanted to feel my whole body on the earth, and so that's why I mentioned you know a student wanting to go down on their hands and knees, lie down, feel the earth, come up, and feel the air, and then feel the pulse of the mind and the pulse of the heart. They wanted to do it in a very expansive and free flowing way. I couldn't tell that student that's not Namaskaram. That's an homage to their connection of their body, of their mind, of their intention, of their breath to the earth. And that's ultimately what Namaskaram is. A student of mine who is Indian, probably about seven or eight years old, said the Namaskaram is like saying hello to the earth. Everybody says hello to the earth differently is what she added. I mean, I learn a lot from students as young as six. They have these profound... But simple revelations about ritual that I have started to carry with me now as a dancer. So I don't think there's an absolute right and wrong. There are prescribed methodologies. For example, we've talked a lot about texts saying there are some options based upon your practice, right? So the same thing applies for rituals. So that's where the question that I wanted to ask you is leading to. Do you have any other thoughts about that?
2: I think what I keep coming back to is why are we doing what we're doing? And In which context? So, the student who felt the version of Namaskaram that made sense to them was to stretch out on the ground and then feel the air and then center with their mind and their heart. That sounds incredible in their specific context and likely makes sense in the context of their movement framework as opposed to the traditions that we come from. However, in that case they're centering themselves but it does not have that connective thread that we might feel you know for me the kuchpuri namaskaram is something that connects me with thousands of kuchpuri dancers around the world
0: exactly and so ritual has always been used in a way to bring communities together sort of centered around a collective action of some sort right and to possibly contribute to a collective voice or a collective ethos. It's important to not discredit the power of an individual's connection to ritual, because that's sacred, right? We talk about ritual as both individualistic practice and as community-building practice, right? What is it about certain practices that we do as dancers that somehow blend the lines between that which is individualistic with one that is collectivistic.
2: What is a ritual that also straddles community and individual, right? I think in a very modern context, and I say modern because I've, I've this was not something that I initially learned as part of my dance pedagogy, is this idea of stretching before dance, right? When I started learning dance, You do the namaskaram, you do your first half steps, you do your second half steps, you do your items in order until you go as far as you can go and then you watch and then when everybody's done, you do your namaskaram again collectively and you finish. That was the ritual of the dance class. What didn't exist in the places where I was learning at that time was this idea of stretching and warming up before and cooling off after. When I performed very recently for a a live performance, they actually had time carved out for us to warm up on stage for different performers from different traditions. And I was the only one there from a South Asian background performing a South Indian classical dance form. But there was something very orienting and almost binding to have That opportunity where even though we didn't see each other in rehearsal, even though we were completely separate up until the day of the performance, we could share that space on stage before the doors opened for the show to center ourselves. And in that very individual moment, in that very singular focused moment, for me as a solo artist, sharing that space with other dancers felt very community oriented.
0: There's something about being with other dancers as we warm up in our very different ways, as we prepare for performance in very different ways. Those moments where we interact or come together, there is definitely an energetic exchange, especially as we all try to get into the zone in our own unique ways whether that's dictated by pedagogy that's been handed down to us, or whether it is through individually cultivated practices, those are things that transcend cultural barriers, especially when we have a similar end result, which for many of us is a performance of some sort, if we are performing artists.
2: Absolutely. So Kiran, one thing I'm curious about is, having been a performing artist who was living in Chennai, and then also being a performing artist living here in the United States and performing here, are there rituals that you have kept constant throughout? And are there rituals that you have revisited and either chosen to set aside or modify based on the cultural context changing?
0: Did you mean my personal rituals or things that are explicitly associated with Bharatanatyam?
2: I think probably a bit of both because we sort of take in those rituals that are associated with the form as our own, right? And when we make it our own is really when we have the dialogue of what do we keep? What do we leave behind? And what do we change?
0: That's a very good point. So in terms of what My personal rituals are for pre and post performance. There are certain standards that are there. Certain things are still there, regardless if I'm performing in India or here. And that's because they've been time tested to work for me. One of which is my makeup process. I usually take about, I would say, an hour and a half to get into full costume, you know, with my hair done and stage makeup all on with my costume. And I need that time because even though I'm a male dancer and I don't have all the as we call it, the headgear, the braid and the fake hair and all that. I just like that time to center myself. And it's usually I like to be alone. One thing that hasn't really changed much is that I will prefer to get ready at home or wherever I'm staying and come to the venue dressed. Certain circumstances have changed that because in India, we didn't have so much of tech rehearsal or Q to cues that we do in Western auditoriums. In those circumstances, I've modified the ritual a bit so that my face is done because that takes the most time for me. So as long as my face makeup is done, I'll be a little bit less off center and off the beat. Ha <laughs> ha, pun intended. <Terrible>. Um... <laughs> As far as certain things that are in place in terms of what we hold as ritual, you know, especially performing in spaces where not necessarily they are with Indian organizers and volunteers and all that to help set up a stage where they keep certain things in place, like they won't wear shoes on the stage. They'll always carry the idol in a specific way. Those kinds of things I also had to let go of because there are certain things that happen in groups that are not necessarily Indian or attuned to Indian classical dance, a college auditorium where they have their own staff, their own lighting technicians, and their own stage hands. And sometimes you're working with students. In such circumstances, you can't say, Oh, I'm about to dance in the space, so you can't wear shoes. People wear shoes because of safety issues, right? We're not allowed to light lamps oil lamps or kutti vilika on stage in many Western auditoriums because it's a fire hazard. Whereas in India, those kinds of things are acceptable even in proscenium stages. What's important is that you feel centered as a dancer and ready to perform. And your team also feels like they're supported as well and that they're supporting you. And whatever that takes and whatever the rituals that those people who are helping you put on the performance need, you should be respectful of, like they should be respectful of certain things that you need as a dancer.
2: What about after the performance? Any rituals there?
0: See, this is why you lead <laughs> the conversation, because we've talked about this privately. and i like surprise. surprised. Yes, I do. <laughs> Ame and I have a really deep connection to chat. That is a ritual in and of itself. We relish chat, we eat and enjoy chat, and everything about life that gives us joy is centered around (laughs) chaat. So my post-performance ritual, which is really important to me, regardless if a performance is good or bad, I like to celebrate a performance with chaat. So if I had a very bad performance, chaat cheers me up. If I had a great performance, chaat makes me even better. And the food poisoning in India was totally worth it.
2: (laughs) You know, the funny thing is for me with chaat, That has been more of a post dance class ritual rather than a post performance ritual. One of the wonderful experiences I had in high school was going back to India after not being able to go for many years, specifically for dance.
0: Let's be real, specifically for Chad.
2: Yes, that too. Because essentially, I was there for six weeks. And for the first three weeks, I had to behave because we had other students there also from the US who were of a more delicate constitution than I.
0: Um, <laughs> so we had... See, chart builds immunity, right? people. Eat chad. <laughs> it builds immunity from the street.
2: So, so, you know, home-cooked food all the way was what we got. Um, and we were staying at my teacher's home. Master Garu and his wife are both teachers, and
0: I was staying with them. This is Hari Master. Yes, so, Hari, right?
2: Hari Ramamurti Garu, principal of Kuchpari Kalakshetra and his wife. And then she runs Sri Siddhendra Yogi Kala Niliyam, both in Vishakapatnam. And they are the reason I started dancing. As much as my mother is my guru, I would not have started class if Bhanu Aunty didn't scare me into it. But once my friends who had come with me had gone back home, to the U.S., Banuanti and I had an arrangement where after class every day, we had to stop somewhere for chat. And we would do this with Mastergaru letting his feelings known about how he thought that was silly. But he would still indulge us by letting me go to get chat after class for the rest of my trip there. And it was probably one of my favorite bonding experiences specific to dance class.
0: This reminds me of a very funny story. So when I was in Kartak, I had a performance that didn't go well, but I was there because they gave me an award, which is one of my very first. And I don't mean this as a humble brag or anything. It was in a theater. It was one of those old school theaters where the dressing rooms are underneath the stage. And then the stage had all these blocks of concrete on it. I don't understand what the setup was. And while I was dancing, I tripped over it and badly cut my foot in the middle of the performance. I was bleeding. Long story short, I performed the second piece. And again, I backed into another block of concrete in the middle of the tilana. And as soon as it was done, I ran off stage, put on my shoes, and walked out the door because I had seen a chat truck (laughs) right outside the auditorium on my way in. Had my chat, and then all of a sudden my cell phone started ringing like crazy. And it was the organizer saying, where are you? Where are you? We're calling you on stage. Oh, no. So the gentleman packed up the chot, gave me some extra to go. And then I ran back and I had the chot bag on stage with me. And I accepted <laughs> my award.
2: Please tell me there are pictures.
0: <laughs> I think I don't know if there are. I think there are pictures. I'm not sure. But I do have pictures of me eating chat in full costume.
2: I guess I'll settle. Let's turn this conversation to rituals that surround our practice.
0: That's good, because we've been talking a lot about things that center us as performers. But I think with Bharatanatyam and Kuchipudi and the other classical dance styles, there is this concept of sadhana or riyas that is there, which deserves a bit of unpacking. I know for a lot of practitioners, the idea of sadhana is that you practice in a certain way, and then you become a master in your tradition and in your in your art but i also feel like there's certain ways in which sadhana is emphasized that kind of pigeonhole the approach to ritual and the approach to one's own relationship to the art through practice i guess to sort of start the conversation there is this idea that you practice every day as a dancer and you sit down and you dedicate 2 to 3 hours of your time in practice each and every day that's sort of what was been told to me by various teachers over time some teachers in my life have been flexible in their approach to telling me how to practice and other teachers have told me no you need to practice this way and so i'm wondering is there a right or a wrong way to do sadhana
2: you know i think part of that is balancing what we need to do against balancing what is being prescribed. Now, I think my early practice and my early training as a dancer was very much that way. It also helped that once we moved to the United States, class was in my house. Every evening, go, start with steps, do jutties, start with the basic items and keep going and going and going. I think that sort of foundation is important. But I think it's also important to recognize that rituals have a context of when they bring you forward. And there may be times when it doesn't give you what you need any longer, at which point you might need to find a new ritual. Now, if that type of daily practice is centering and it is productive and it is helping you grow as an individual, as a dancer, then you should continue. But if it stops doing so, then you have to reconsider. That is something that I have had to do. I practiced that way all through high school. And by the time I got to my college years, it wasn't working for me. I was going to a camp with, with Harima Shigaru, Um here in Richmond, Virginia, as a college student. And I was beyond frustrated with myself because as somebody who had been dancing easily for, you know, eight plus hours a day in previous summers, I couldn't get past a certain point with a Thilana. And the more I kept doing the same thing, right? Steps, Jethys, and then items, I wasn't seeing results. So, I really needed to reconfigure my practice, which really ended up being a hard thing to do because it was giving up my ritual. But I needed to reconfigure how I practiced to be much more targeted and focused on where I needed support rather than doing what I had always done. And once I took that step of changing my rituals of practice, my dance began improving again.
0: Just because something is a ritual doesn't mean it is lakshanam, grammar, and set in stone. Rituals also live and breathe and interact with we as changing individuals that are responding to a changing world around us. Sacredness is not a fixed definition. Ritual is not a fixed practice. It is a habitual practice, and it is a practice that is very intentional but that doesn't mean that it is fixed. And I think this is also going back to the idea of tradition being fixed versus something that lives and breeds and evolves over time. And I think the example that you had just illustrated about changing the way in which you practice is key to this idea. You know, I think also coming to terms with what you want out of dance also informs the kind of practice that you do. What sustains me in daily practice is a constant tinkering with ideas, whether it means that I sit and I work on a jati and explore the nuances and cadences of that. It's usually in service to something that I'm thinking about doing with it. And I think this whole idea of sadhana or riyas, where it is focusing a lot on, um, you know, revisiting basic steps, doing the prescribed pedagogy of how you learned the steps and keep doing that, has its place. Don't get me wrong, it helps keep you in form, but it isn't the only way to do sadhana. So, for example, I'm a shower singer, and Nico can basically <laughs> attest for that. Nico is my nickname for Wesley Beeks, but I'll be singing in the shower, like a 500 different ways, and doing abine in the shower because the shower's special to me. So you think of creative ways to maintain a sadhana of some sort, but in your own personal way. And that's how it gets this whole idea of sacredness. It's not a prescribed way to practice. It's how you relate to your practice and what it gives you what you need and what you desire as an artist.
2: You know what that makes me think about is the process that I take when I'm working on a particular piece. There's a certain ritual to that too. Absolutely. Right. I have to begin with the song i have to have that song as a constant earworm and it has to be haunting me and then i have to get that peace in my body and have it set and sink in when i'm in that mode that's when i am most productive and that's when i feel most fulfilled
0: and that's also a daily thing, right? It's not just like yeah. a one-off thing. It's like a Absolutely. It's a daily tinkering. I feel like ritual has many, many purposes, you know, for the individual and the community at large. So, first of all, as we talked about in the very beginning, ritual as a tool to center joy, ritual as a tool to center intention, ritual as a tool for focusing the mind and the heart. And ritual, ultimately, to do something productive and generative, whether that is just practicing your favorite item, or whether it is you're working on a new piece, trying to figure out something for a student, it's generative. In Indian classical dance, there is just a beautiful confluence in which the sacred notions of ritual, as well as the secular notions of ritual, can have a beautiful meeting point in the dancing body. With that, I have a last question for you, Amea. We've talked about rituals changing over time. What have been some of the considerations that you've made with the rituals that you have in place as a practitioner and performer that have been in response to the COVID-19 pandemic?
2: What has really changed for me as a result of the pandemic is the way that I treat my practice space in my home. Previously, it wasn't the center of everything. It wasn't ground zero for practicing, creating, performing, collaborating, and everything. I would go to other places. With this happening, it impacted it a couple of different ways. One is it made me kind of focus on how do I need to change the space to work for me? And how do I need to change the way I enter the space? And I don't really know how to put that in words because it's more of a a mindset thing rather than physical changes. The second thing has been I never really thought too much about decisions to make as a performer previously. I really needed to rethink what I wore and what I chose not to wear. And I began making much more conscious choices, not only based on the space and the occasion, but also based on where I am and what I'm feeling, as opposed to fitting into the uniform. And I think lastly, I have made a conscious decision to move all of my dance-related work that is not just dancing into this space. What that's done for me is given me a process that I can repeat that I don't don't have to think about. I don't have to make decisions. And instead, I can just get into the flow.
0: Now, the house is everything for us. It's a workspace. It's an eating space. It's a living space. It's a dance space. It's a creation space. For me, it's also a teaching space. There are pros and cons to it. When you're equipped to be able to have all those different things coexist in its space, it's wonderful. But when they're blending together, for me as a dancer, it becomes very difficult to uphold rituals that I had in place before. Because sometimes we ascribe a specific space location for something. So bringing this to a close, I wanted to then ask you, what have you learned today?
1: Today's conversation was interesting
2: because we're not pulling from a text or a concept and instead exploring what we know, trying to make better sense of it. And what has been very helpful for me is the necessity to interrogate the purpose of our rituals as well as to recognize that they're rituals. And I should probably say that the other way around the necessity to, one, recognize when something is a ritual and give it that position and then two interrogate why that ritual is important to us and how is it serving us whether it's from a an individual perspective or from a community perspective whether it connects us with nature whether it connects us with the divine what that lets us do is keep the things that keep us grounded and ensure that What is sacred doesn't become mundane, both in our daily lives as dancers and in our performances. How about you, Kiran? What did you learn today?
0: Our conversation about ritual, especially as something that brings a community together, uplifts a community together, made me reevaluate my relationship, for example, to, say, religion and understanding why people seek out the liturgical. Because The beauty of ritual is the coming together of people and the convergence of energies into something that is singular and extremely powerful. So I don't want to trivialize those things that we hold sacred externally as Indian classical dancers, whether or not our personal relationship to them is different. Certain things I think are just important and and they're very centering in terms of our practice, like bells. You know, I I started off at the beginning of this episode basically saying, Young Kirin, I get you, but you're doing too much. But I left the conversation a bit transformed, to be honest, thinking I see why Young Kirin was so upset about the bells, but he didn't have the language at the time to articulate why it was so important. Because the way it's contextualized, it hits upon these four levels of ritual in a very beautiful way as a metaphor. So I will cherish my bells. I'll hold them as sacred. Likewise, I'll hold my makeup time as sacred. Ultimately, as a performing artist, you want to be transcendent, not necessarily in a liturgical sense, but in terms of an artistic and aesthetic and intentional sense. And if there are things in your rituals that help you to get into that frame of mind, to get your body into that state where it can be a vessel, and the art flows into you and flows out of you, then those things are sacred. The other thing that I also learned was many of us dancers have very similar rituals, and it's not necessarily just because we're told that this is a ritual. There is some sort of ritual that connects us to something that is of a purpose. So for namaskaram, it's connecting to the earth and connecting to energy. Whether it is somebody rolling on the ground, whether it is somebody doing namaskaram, or whether somebody is in prayer, there is a link of intention that runs through and that spans cultures, that transcends boundaries. That's the power of ritual in so many ways.
1: I think that's beautiful.
0: So, keeping in mind the fact that sacredness and ritual are also changeable and evolve, this week's call to action is Have your dance rituals changed in response to the world around us? We'd love to hear from you about your rituals and what they mean to you and how they engage you with the world around you, especially through art or whatever it is that you hold dear and sacred. Today's episode would not have been possible without the incredible support and amazing encouragement of our listeners and the following people. We edit podcasts for Audio Engineering, Sangeeta Kaushik for graphic design of our logo, Sharada Jammi for Ameya Studio Space, and finally, a very, very special thanks to Wesley Beeks and Bertel King Jr. Like what you heard? Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts Subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us so that more people can find the show. You can also support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash offthebeatdance. Your donations, reviews, and support will go a long way to help us continue the show. You can also join our conversation by following us on social media at Dance on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter Or you can visit us on our website at www.offthebeat.dance. We'd love to hear from you. And join us next week for our final episode of the season.